Dundeal has the largest range of electric vehicles in Ireland from Ireland's trusted premium car dealerships. That's why you will find MSL Park Motors Skoda on Dundeal. Stop by MSL Park Motors Skoda showroom on Dundeal today and connect with them for great deals on electric vehicles. Dundeal, for electric vehicle deals to feel great about from all of Ireland's trusted car dealerships. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. Now, the politics of property. We'll discuss what's happening to the supply and demand and how planning problems are increasing international investor concerns about Ireland. We look at a riveting new book called Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And you may not know it, but we've entered the exponential age. It's a time of tech acceleration, which is changing life around us as we know it. But to start us off today, we're joined in studio now by Brian Morn, who is Senior Managing Director of Heinz Ireland, and Ronan Lyons, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin and Director of Trinity Research in Social Sciences. Brian, Ronan, you're very welcome to the programme and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having us, Mandy. Now, this week's daft.ie latest report showed that average rent rises for residential properties increased by almost 7%. So average monthly rents are now over 1,500. That means that rent has more than doubled over the last 10 years. And as the government tries its best to urgently bring in new changes uh, to the planning system to fast track supply, we're going to ask if there's any respite for renters on the horizon and if our planning process and the prevailing political climate around it is becoming a very hostile environment for large investors companies. Uh, Ronan, I might start with you. So Daft say that the scarcity of rental properties has resulted in the increase in the rents and that the rise in the regions is likely down to a trend where more people are starting to live outside of the capital um, and work remotely as a result of COVID. Can you just talk us through the main findings and was there anything in these findings that surprised you this time? Yeah, I mean, most of the, I suppose, the, the, the things you look at first pass when you look at this kind of report are continuations of a trend that's been emerging over the last, say, nine, 12 months. So rents had fallen a little bit in Dublin in the early days of COVID and then bottomed out and then they started increasing again. And we see that with kind of 3% increases. Um, once you get outside Dublin, the increases are a bit bigger. Mm. Uh, other cities are seeing increases of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9% year on year. And the same is true of the commuter counties around Dublin. But the biggest increases are in on, on the in the West Coast. So um, there uh, you could be talking about 20% year on year increases uh, that in, in sort of euro and cents terms. That's 100 euro extra a month. In These are open market rents. These mm. are not the sitting um, uh, tenants. That's not the rents that they pay because that's an agreement between them and their landlord. This is, if you're in the open market now, um, you're, you're you're seeing big increases in particular away from the main cities. And what, what I learned from this report that was different, though, from the trends that have been emerging, first is the unprecedented scarcity of rental stock out there. Um, I mean, there's a slight asterisk now that we have the first of the build to rent stuff coming on stream. Mm. You could argue with some of the figures for, say, Dublin, maybe the true number is a bit higher. But if I can give you the Dublin number and I'll give you the rest of the country afterwards, normally in a healthy rental market in Dublin, you'd see four, five, six thousand uh, rental homes available online at any point in time. We've got used to in the last couple of years seeing 1,500 or 2,000. So that was what I would have called a starved market. Now they're just 800. Wow. Uh, so the, it, it's uh, we can go back 20 years for the Dublin rental market and there's nothing like it in, yeah. in 20 years. And uh, the same picture is true elsewhere in the country and it's probably even worse in other parts of the country. Limerick has 11 properties mm. available to rent and there's, if you pick a, a random town or not a random town but any town mm. um, in say the Midlands or in the commuter counties you're probably talking half a dozen or a dozen. So this is, I mean this is really bad in terms of the availability. So for me the obvious thing is to get new purpose-built rental homes into the into the supply. Mm. I mean, it, it seems kind of mind-boggling that we'd even be debating that, um, but that is absolutely 100% the solution. And that brings me neatly to you, Brian. Um, I might bring you in here. Heinz is one of the largest real estate developers in the world, and it's been in Ireland for just over 10 years now. Um, you obviously got your approval from Onboard Planola for over 1,000 apartments this week, and we'll, we'll come back to that in, in, in a little bit. But can you tell us a little bit about your company um, and what actually first attracted you as a company to the Irish market? Well, I think if you look at the fundamentals of the economy here in Ireland, we, we have a lot of foreign investment in the country. We have a growing population. 
Uh, Dublin, in fact, is the third biggest tech city, if you want, in Europe. So after London and Madrid, we actually have the highest uh, cohort of, of workers in the tech sector. So there's a lot of very good issues around growth and an opportunity to invest money here uh, in, for, for the long term that, that attracted us to this, this market. Mm. So the landscape is good and the government are, are doing a lot to promote large scale residential development, particularly in the city centres. Um, but there's a lot of challenges, aren't there, on the ground, uh, getting through the planning processes and getting communities on board. Can you talk us through the types of problems someone like you would encounter? Well, look, I think the first thing to say is I recognise the emotive challenge that is out there for people who are struggling to pay rent, who see, uh, the, you know, the challenge in viability that, that that's there. And the reality is you can't lose sight of the, the logic behind it and some of the numbers that, that Ronan has mentioned. Um, the viability has become a huge issue uh, for, for delivery. The cost of construction today re- relative to any time in history and the quality of what we have to build now is, is very, very expensive. And therefore, there's a lack of realisation that, you know, the new product that we have to build is actually very expensive to produce and indeed expensive to rent out or, or to sell in due course. If you go back in time, uh, apartments in particular, at any point in time, uh, where there was only about 20% of them ever sold to owner-occupiers, 80% always went to investors, but they tend to be private investors. That's now obviously replaced by more longer-term institutional investors, which is a positive but it's often seen in the market as, as currently as a, as a negative. But if we don't see that supply coming through, uh, the numbers that Roland spoke about will even get worse. And just in relation to the Clonliffe uh, project, uh, you can't rule out something there like a judicial review uh, happening um, from, from the local community's perspective. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of new legislation bouncing around on housing, but there's still uncertainty. So what does all of that policy change and planning uncertainty do for investor sentiment? It makes it very difficult. I'd, I'd be honest. Obviously, you know, we're, we're here 10 years. Our investors are with us for a long time. But certainly from my discussions with investors, long-term institutional pension fund investors from around Europe, they're very nervous about coming to the Irish market. I think... One of the key things you've got to look at is when we get to about 35, 38,000 units per annum, which is what we need to be building, uh, to be honest, at a minimum uh, to meet our, our needs, that's around 12 billion uh, euros per annum needed in Ireland. The government will invest about 1.1 directly in terms of capital spend and social housing. The Irish banks and all the various pieces of Irish investment you put together get to about another 1.5 billion. So we need to bring in about 8 to 9 billion euros per annum every year from sources beyond Ireland to actually fund the the housing stock we need. What we need to do is make sure that that, the capital coming in is longer term, lower cost, uh, more money that has a focus on social, you know, the social delivery of of all the other things, not just the housing, but prepared to invest in other things alongside that, the amenities, the parks, etc. If we don't attract that the right type of capital, it'll become more expensive. It'll make certain projects unviable. And I'm very, very nervous when I hear the discourse on the radio and indeed with certain politicians around scaring away this capital uh, because we do not have it here in Ireland. We don't have the capital needed to build the housing stock we need. Yeah, and we we might revisit some of those political um, positions in a few moments. But Ronan, can I turn to you for a second on the Mm -hmm. legislative side of things? So the strategic housing development system, which was introduced in 2016, is about to be replaced by a new measure. That's the large scale residential development bill. What is in there that you think is going to help to increase the supply of housing? I think for me... Some of this, you've got to be seen to be doing something. And I think that's often the problem with housing policy is that housing policy has to be seen to be doing stuff straight away. But housing delivery takes time. And the government introduced, for example, build to rent uh, planning codes in, I think it was 2018. And COVID, of course, disrupted a bit of that. But we're starting to see now the first uh, opening of purpose-built rental uh, you know, th- there's been a couple of developments, but this is going to happen at scale now for the next two, three, four or five years, which is great for it's all concentrated in Dublin effectively. So it's great for the Dublin housing market that mm. there'll be new yeah. rental supply. But people have already judged build to rent before it's actually delivered. And they say, well, that didn't work. It's like, well, it's only been there for three years. Um, mm. And a year and a half of that was under COVID. So if you've got a planning system, uh, a capacity constraints in the construction sector, it's you, you've got to judge these things for over five to 10 years, not over 18 months to two years or even less. And I get why politicians want to be seen to get results straight away. 
but there are no quick fixes when mm. you've got a lack of housing and housing takes time to build and you want to allow everyone to have their say and there's nothing wrong with people having their say but that all takes time so so I worry about knee-jerk changes as in well that clearly didn't work uh, after three years so let's try something else and then two years in that didn't work and we try something else and all the while the what you might call the patient capital the patient savings that are there in their abundance in Europe and the rest of the world um, are looking at Ireland going could you just settle down and mm. if you need the housing we will build it but not if you keep constantly chopping and changing and that's what happens a lot of this happens in a, a climate of dis- you know negative discourse in a political sense and that 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 you know upends the policy and then we're back to square one where we're not allowing enough time for the policy to filter through yeah and I think there's, there's two things that are mixed up in here in the in what I see and I would kind of be I won't I won't say I'm at the forefront of this but I see a lot of it on say on Twitter and and and, and other um, online channels is that two things get mixed up firstly people remember the word vulture fund from the uh, these organizations that came in and bought stuff off the Irish banks uh, and then they just call anything that is uh, a foreign investor a vulture fund. But as, as Brian was saying there, vulture funds are, are, serve a particular purpose, like vultures serve a particular purpose in nature. They come in, they take stuff that nobody else wants to hold and they get out quickly. What we have are investors that, uh, say, uh, Heinz or Kennedy Wilson or the REITs or whatever, um, uh, they are coming in, they are making, they're, they have, they're backed by what I say, pa- I call patient capital, patient savings. Um, they're here for 10, 20, 30, 40, not even 10, they're here for 20, 30, 40. 40 years. Mm. That's a much lower rate of return they're looking for because they're doing it over the longer term. That's one confusion that gets made and I think it's a really important distinction that long-term rental investors are very different to vulture funds and we should try and separate those two terms. And the other confusion is that people kind of and I, you know, it was it was it Dermot Desmond uh, had a letter in the Irish Times recently about this or something, or a letter to the the Taoiseach was talking about social housing policy and 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 private rental housing, yes. market rental. Now, I do think it's expensive for the state to be paying five percent for social housing, um, when it can borrow for one percent, mm. right? So that's that that's a different issue though yeah. to. The, the the vast bulk of people should be able to rent in the private market if they want to rent and that will need for-profit developers and um, because capital has a cost so there's, there's there's a couple of things that are mixed up there and when I go online and I say as I did yesterday we need lots of purpose rental homes you get all of this coming back in a confused way mm. um, and I, I, I do think we need clarity uh, light rather than heat on this Yeah if you've just joined us you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston we're talking about the housing crisis and international investment with Brian Morn, who is Senior Managing Director at Heinz Ireland, and Ronan Lyons, who's Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College and Director of the Trinity Research in Social Sciences. Brian, can I turn to you again now? One of the criticisms, um, just going back to, to what Ronan said about online um, activity in this space, one of the criticisms that surfaced online about the Clonliffe project, but it, it's something that's frequently seen about uh, developing uh, apartments w- within the city centre, is the issue of the apartment size and the mix of apartments, why do most of your developments focus on building one-bedroom apartments and studios? Well, in, in fact, our, our our developments vary depending on where they're located. So out in Cherrywood, we have a much bigger mix of two-bed and three-beds. When we're closer to the city centre, it's going to be smaller one-beds and two-beds. And that's looking at the demographics of the electorate area and indeed the job and the employment opportunities that are in the area. Take the area around Clonliffe, for example, there in the, the area around Clonliffe, about 60% of the house, of the stock is actually houses. But about 40% of that housing stock is being used as apartments, pushing out families. So if you think about it, Clonliffe is just one jigsaw piece in a big puzzle. And that one jigsaw piece is not going to be you know, perfect for society. You've got to look at that as adding to the other pieces all around it. So what Clonliffe does by being primarily focused on one and two person units is adding to and adjusting the housing mix in the overall area to reflect the actual true demand that's there. You've also got a situation where in the next two years in the central business district, you have 20,000 new jobs. The the buildings are being built. The the employees are being hired currently. A lot of them are actually working from home, uh, but they will actually come into the office space. But you've only about 2,000 units being delivered in the city centre in that time frame. So there's 18,000 additional people going to be looking for housing in that area. If we don't deliver this new housing stock, and a lot of those are going to be rental, a lot of the demand is rental, that 18,000 is going to put huge pressure on the existing housing stock and take more houses and convert them into apartments. So what we're doing is actually 
addressing the market as it exists, no different to the way somebody selling cars in the forecourt. They have lots of puntos because people want small cars and they have one or two station wagons or large Volvos because there's a couple of families. You don't build, you know, have loads and loads of family units if the demand is actually for smaller units. And the demand, the demographic demand, 70% plus, is for one and two person units. Yeah. Could I go actually a step further mm. on that and say sure. that this has been a failing of the Irish system over the last 25 years. That it was it was perfectly possible to look at the numbers in the 1990s and say what we need to build between the 1990s and 2020 is we will need to build. And this is not you know 2020 hindsight. You could look at the numbers as they were at the time and say we need to build housing predominantly in and close to the main cities and towns and predominantly for one and two person households. What did we do? We built about 900,000 homes, but about 750,000 of those were rural and for larger um, households. We simply do not have enough families in this country for all the family homes that are currently exist in the country. So I don't think you expected someone to come on and say we have too many houses. Mm, um, no. <laughs> but 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 we do in a way, right? Because we have all sorts of non uh, we've too many family houses. Yeah, we, have we just don't homes. have the we don't right. Have enough no, we don't have. To, to, yeah, we've got non-families living in them. We've one and two-person households, or people combining up six students in a three-bed. Yeah, we just don't have the right property mix. Yeah, uh, and at, that's where things like Clonliffe come in. Yeah, and look, part of the issue, um, I think, and, and Ronan touched on it earlier here, is that um, development in Ireland has seemed to become sort of internationalised. It's perceived, certainly in some quarters, as an opportunistic event investment um, during a housing crisis. What would you say to the political critics uh, of, of companies like yours um, who say that you're here just to exploit, essentially, exploit a housing crisis? Well, I think that's unfair in, in the first instance, but I also think it's, it's, it's denying, it's using an emotive response and, and moving away from the logic. And the logic, as Ronan has pointed out, is we, we badly, badly, badly need an awful lot more housing and an awful lot more small units and in particular to rent. And if we don't do that, the housing crisis is going to get a lot worse. Our business, and we've been here for 10 years and we, we operate, in fact, Across Europe, we're building currently, Heinz is building about 30,000 apartments in, in various cities across Europe. Uh, so our, our business model is building higher density urban apartments. And that's exactly the model we, we, we're doing here, where we believe there's a, a great demand and a good opportunity to deliver very good quality product. Brian, your finance model is based on partnerships with large institutional investors um, and international pension funds. How would you rate international investor sentiments towards the Irish market at the moment? I think two, twofold. First of all, the, the, the you know the actual requirement in Ireland is huge, and therefore they're quite prepared to invest here. I think as things have evolved, and as the discourse on this subject has evolved over the last, um, let's say, twenty-four months, they've become increasingly nervous uh, around how that is evolving. Um, I think investors that are here will probably stay the course and recognise that development is challenging, and you are always going to hit a few speed bumps uh, along the way. But I'm certainly aware of a number of large uh, European investors who are saying, well, we will give Ireland a skip because, you know, getting involved in being accused of being a vulture fund when that's the furthest thing that they are is something they don't want to get get accused of because it doesn't suit you know their reputation with investors. And the challenge for us is that without this long-term, lower-cost, patient capital, as Ron calls it, we do not have the money in this country to build the housing we need by a factor of three or four. So, you know, we, we have to be very careful what we wish for here. If we scare away this money, we will end up drifting back to higher cost money. And if that happens, then many projects won't be viable anymore. Ronan, can I can I finish up by asking you, is all of this um, a big transition phase for us as a country who are getting used to... Um, developing policy which is designed towards rental, building things that are designed to more, towards rental. Are we just a country who's in transition to a more European model of non-ownership and more renting? Is this... Well, I, I do think... There's the, maybe I'll break that into two bits. The first bit is that... And it kind of builds on something Brian said there. If not these savers, then which savers are we going to turn to for the, the money we need? Like... It, I remember the discussion in the mid-2000s and people were saying, look, it's not right that we're relying on Section 23 to provide rental housing. They, roughly speaking, they were right. There was an issue with construction costs that Section 23 tried to fix, but it did it in a very blunt way. And we ended up with lots of tiny investors with one or two homes um, uh, each. Um, and that's not, not, not really a way to deliver. People were saying, why couldn't we have something more like the European rental system? 
that's what's happening. We mm. are getting European-style um, arrangements. Now, uh, one thing I would say is Ireland is one of the countries in Europe with the highest share of renters. We think of ourselves as a nation of owner-occupiers. Um, but actually, after um, Germany, uh, Switzerland and Austria, there's a, a bunch of countries that Ireland is in. Ireland, the UK, France, Denmark. We're the next in, in terms of a fraction of renting. So it's, it's not that we need to transition. It's that we need to transition our perception. Mm. We are a country of, of, of renters, more so than most other European countries. We just haven't got the professional rental stock to back that up. And that's what we should be looking to put in place. Now, I would also say that it's not all or nothing, right? This, uh, I am sort of strongly in favour, I was saying like only 800 homes available to rent in Dublin at the moment. If we build an extra 45,000 over the next five years, that will help tremendously. But that's not it. Right? It's not that we need to build that and nothing else. We need to build social housing. We need to build housing for older households, independent living, assisted living. There's a whole range of housing options that we need to add. This is just one part of it. But if we kill this part, um, we're going to end up with all sorts of unintended consequences. Well, it's an issue which is going to continue to perplex many as politicians grapple with trying to increase the supply for those who are desperate to rent or own property with one eye on the next election, whatever that happens to be or whenever it is, but also one other eye on assuaging and attracting international investors. But I'm sorry, we've run out of time. We're, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Brian Moran, Senior Managing Director at Heinz Ireland and Ronan Lyons, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you for, both very much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm joined now from New York by Adam Toos, who's Professor of History and the Director at the European Institute at Columbia University. In his new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World Economy, he analyzes the different ways in which governments around the world responded to the pandemic and what it reveals about the way power works in the modern world. Adam, you're very welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Firstly, Adam, it's an extraordinary compilation of economic, political and social developments over what seems like an impossibly short period of time. Can I start by asking you, why did you choose the word shutdown? Here in Ireland, we tended to refer to the restrictions as lockdown. Is there a distinction? Um, it's deliberate, the choice. I mean, if you look on if you look online, you know, me and my publisher sat down and tried to figure out what to call the book. If you look online and 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 search for lockdown. All books featuring the title lockdown before 2020 were basically prison exploitation novels about, you know, people in prison suffering all sorts of horrible punishment, because that's the what we use the term lockdown for was to describe collective punishment of prisoners. And so when you put it like that, you see, I think it, it reveals the fact that the term itself is polemical. And the term lockdown is really a description of what happened in 2020 and though, as though it was imposed on us by by government. And, and in some cases, that's not an unfair description of what happened um, in France. Even, you know, you had to have a police certificate to go outside in South Africa and in India. Quite violent, coercive means were used to enforce the lockdown. But certainly in the United States and, and in much of the rest of Europe, it just isn't a good description of what happened, which is something much more like a kind of collaboration between private citizens, businesses, consumers, financial markets, crucially for my account, who are pulling back to a place of safety. And in a sense, the role of government is to support people in doing that, to license it, to authorize it and to make it collective, right, to insist that everyone go along rather than or the least pushed the majority of people into going along, rather than a sort of top-down coercive imposition. Hmm. So more like a, a really large global social pact uh, with less yeah. uh, enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Now, you start your book by saying that if one word could sum up the experience of 2020, it would be disbelief and none of us can... can argue with that. The book traces various levels of, of political and economic impacts from a number of different perspectives. So it's looking from government, central banks, looks at high streets, factory floors. But in all of this, were there governments that you saw who maybe handled the national policies better than others? Is there anybody you could single out and say they, they, they approach this in a particularly good way? I think, uh, yes, there are. I mean, before we go there, I mean, I think it's worth saying that this sort of government Olympics is is a really characteristic product of the crisis. It's a little bit like the lockdown meme. 
in the sense that it, we should, I think, be a little cautious about going to that place because all of us, in a sense, want to know whether there's some place that did it better than where we're at. I, I, I don't mean to relativise. There clearly are places that handled it terribly, including the United States, including the UK, but large parts of Eastern Europe in the end, Latin America. And on the other hand, there are countries which did a much better job at protecting their citizens. And, and you know, one thinks immediately of South Korea, of New Zealand, uh, Japan, actually, but I think probably more by good fortune than design, but but did much better. And even within Europe, there are gradations. Um, and then there's the big question mark around China. Where mm. do we put China? On the one hand, it's the country that, as it were, let the virus out. And on the other hand, it's the country that with least warning and facing a tr truly novel threat, you know, head on as they did mm. in late January and February, also then has managed to contain it so that now they're the odd country out that really just doesn't have any natural immunity at all because the epidemic never never really got hold in the vast majority of that giant country. I mean, it's so it's, you know, it's to describe it as a country from the point of view of, you know, a, a mere European country or even the United States, you know, it's more than four times larger in terms of population than the gigantic United States. Yeah, China's a, a, an interesting uh, question all around. There's a chapter in the book that's called Wasting Time. And I have to say, mm. when I read it, it was actually quite unbelievable, the global willful blindness uh, around China. Can we talk about um, why do you think the world ignored what was happening in China in January and February of 2020 to the extent that it did? Yeah, this is the key question, right? For all the finger pointing that I think we can quite legitimately do in Beijing's direction. I mean, their reporting system failed. The news didn't come up from Hubei. They took a couple of days to react in Beijing, and that was disastrous. But the real question that follows on from that is, OK, now we're in this situation. It's out. There is this very serious risk. Why, if Beijing is shutting down airline connections to Wuhan, two mm -hmm. gigantic cities, yeah. several hours apart from each other, why does the penny not drop? And everyone in London, Tokyo, Paris, New York, Dublin not realise, oh my God, if they're having to do that within their country, we surely have to do the same thing. Because, you know, Wuhan isn't Chernobyl. It's not stuck behind the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. It's not in provincial Ukraine. It's a gigantic 10 million strong city of very affluent people who fly all over China and the rest of the world. And so, you know, this is immediately of concern to us. And yet, as we know, it took the, essentially the best part of two months for JFK to close in New York, mm -hmm. um, which just put us all here in this city at, at extreme risk. Thousands and thousands of people died as a result of that of that failure, tens of thousands in the end. And then as it spread from China uh, into Europe and there were decisions taken by the Italian national government in, in Rome in the first instance on that weekend of the 7th to 8th, 8th of March, that set in motion an avalanche of decision making by national governments around the world. Could you just talk us through what that precipitated? I know it's a big question, but it, it, it did have its own dynamic, that, that intervention by the Italian government. It did. It became a sort of um, sort of an avalanche movement. There's a very telling memo within the British government where some scientific advisors are saying, you know, to Whitehall, you, you know, if you don't act now, you're going to have to explain yourselves. And, you know, there's a headline, I think it's in the mirror, like, you know, is it enough? Um, that becomes the mood. So we go from a sort of collective refusal of reality in February to a collective sense that really now it's just a matter of time. We're now in the Olympics, right? We're in a race and it's a sprint and, and everyone has to act. And if you're not acting, you're failing. And so, you know, I think as far as the Europeans were concerned, clearly the sooner the better because the, the epidemic was out and about and, and, and was going to kill tens of thousands and ultimately hundreds of thousands of people. But with regard to places in the developing world or low-income countries like, like India, you really have to ask, I think, whether, well, certainly the sort of lockdown that Modi imposed in India at the end of March was not the, probably the right answer to, to the crisis. The level of infection at that point was quite low. The society was simply not prepared. And if you are a country with hundreds of millions of desperately poor people, then as it were, a rich country style shutdown, lockdown, whatever you're going to call it, mm -hmm. it, it may not be the way to go. And um, and I think there are very serious questions there about, you know, on the one hand, you could read this as a as a sort of exercise of 
equality, right? I mean, another thing you could say about this moment is that this is the first global pandemic where no one's life is so cheap that, as it were, your government could simply shrug and say, you know, what, well, we're just going to let this rip through. I mean, obviously, some people did say this in various points in the West, but they were overridden. And what's really striking is that that same logic clearly applies to the South African government, the Chilean government, the Peruvian government, the Indian government as well, and certainly the Chinese government. They may be brutal and authoritarian in many ways, but they have clearly a very serious commitment to the health security of their populations. This isn't true for the Spanish flu epidemic 100 years ago, you know, where hundreds of millions of people died largely in the imperial world and London would just shrug. Yeah, and it led governments everywhere to take radical measures which have been long demanded by politicians on the left, but they were doing it not to build anything new or a different society, but rather to maintain the status quo, as you say. Um, can I just talk a little bit about the, the financial side of things, again referring to that period of March 2020, you said that at that time, the most dangerous debt in the world was neither the United States nor in emerging markets. It was actually Europe. Um, I'm, I'm particularly struck by also the sentiment around how Europe treated Italy at that time. It, it didn't cover itself in glory. And I was reminded of that um, reaction from Christian Lagarde at the time about we're not here to close the spreads. Could you just talk to us about that, that European debt issue and European solidarity or the lack of it? Yeah, the reason. Yeah, I mean, the reason why European debt is the, is the most dangerous is, you know, as we know, and, and this is a rehash of of the crisis ten years ago, is that it's it's sort of in a foreign currency, right? I mean, big sovereign debts, big government debts can be handled at really extraordinarily high levels if they are denominated in the currency of the sovereign. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, you could always pay by just printing a giant charity check and saying, "Here it is," right? You ne you need never default, and you know, rich countries like the UK or the United States or Japan borrow in their own currencies, and so they can handle very high-level debt. Of debt. The, the problem in the eurozone is that it's by construction such that the sort of currency is partly yours and partly not, and this this creates a fundamental instability, which everyone knows is there, and can be handled by the ECB if the ECB is willing to act like a central bank. In other words, treat all the eurozone members as though they were and had full claims on the sovereign backing of the central bank, and that is what. Lagarde put in doubt in that critical press conference. She then rapidly backtracked. And by the end of March, the ECB is merrily buying Eurozone bonds. And since then, the whole issue has completely disappeared. I mean, Italy's, Italy's yields are now, you know, close to zero. The same for Portugal, even Greece, you know, mm -hmm. with a huge debt burden now, over 200% of GDP um, can borrow at close to zero. In fact, there was a moment when it went negative very briefly for short-term lending. To and Greece, and but that's a critical political decision, and it, and and it wasn't obvious in in March that it would go the right way. And your book, in an in an overall sense, to me, is an attempt to to find where it can learnings about what what could possibly come next. And just staying with EU for one second, um, because this is predominantly an Irish audience, did they handle the crisis any better? This crisis any better than they handled the financial crash in two thousand and eight? Well, I think what what Europe did is it sort of stared over the cliff edge again, right? It stared mm. deeply into the abyss in March and April. And I think we should take Macron at his words when he said that this was a moment of truth for the EU and the panic, phone calls and emails were going back, of course, back and forth across the Atlantic, to be honest, in that period about whether Europe was going to slide back into a 2010, 2011, 2012 type scenario. And then the ECB, first of all, steps up and starts buying because the whole thing is going to explode in March if it doesn't. And then uh, the crucial decisions are made between Paris and, and Berlin in late April, May to innovate and to create something like a fiscal structure and common debt for Europe. You know, the Corona bond idea was what got shot down in March. That wasn't going to fly. Ireland yes. was part of the coalition of states that pushed for that. Mm -hmm. It's a very sensible idea. It's exactly the right thing to do, but intolerable politically. But then, you know, a solution was worked out that effectively meant that you did that, but you did it by way of the borrowing of Brussels rather than some sort of consortium of nation states, which would have implied a mutual responsibility for each other. That's the legal fix. Mm. De facto, by the summer, Europe has the promise of, uh, of common debt. The third factor that's crucial here that's often underplayed 
along with ECB support and this historic shift of the next-gen EU package, is the fact that Brussels just basically green-lighted national programmes for fiscal spending as nations saw fit. It didn't insist on mm. the stability and growth pact regulations being imposed. Now, that could have led to disaster in the bond market if the ECB hadn't been there. But if you have all three of those in place, you have freedom to act, you have the ECB backing that, and then you have the medium-term prospect of some structural movement in Europe, well, then that's a really good news story. And in fact, compared to the shenanigans in the United States at the same moment, it's a very good news story. And so big money really gets behind the EU at that point. Yeah, and so without that allowing national governments to decide their own policy, they might have been, you know, not moving at the pace that's required in, in a pandemic and could yep. have ultimately led to, to a lot more deaths. Um, the core analysis of your piece, as I see it, is that this is a first significant demonstration of an unbalanced relationship that we have with nature. Um, you say it's an era-defined by the blowback from our unbalanced relationship with nature. And you think that we're lucky that something like this hadn't happened sooner. Could you just talk to me a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, I think we're all familiar with this idea from the climate you know, crisis debate. And, you know, we're speaking as, as COP is, is, is ongoing. Um, but if you go, look back in history, almost over exactly the same period, right? So the climate scientists have been working out their analysis of the unbalanced relationship with the climate for half a century now, since the 70s. Over that same period, epidemiologists, public health experts, virologists have in fact been diagnosing and, and, and become more and more focused on the fact that this is another element of our unstable relationship with nature. So the way in which we consume um, food, uh, highly you know, intensive animal rearing on the one hand, the way in which we incorporate wild nature, the unplanned extension of urban environments, all of that is what came together after all in Wuhan to, mm -hmm. to create this. I think our best guess is, is that's what created this new disease. If, if it wasn't, frankly, the scientists can show you half a dozen others that will be coming down the pipeline. <laughs> And are quite likely to come down the pipeline soon. If this was just a, an industrial accident in a lab, frankly, I don't see it as any more reassuring because there's plenty of labs around the world. In either case, that's the kind of image of instability that they've yes. been telling us and yeah. warning us about. And if you look back to SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, you know, they've all in various ways not been quite right to be, as it were, the global pandemic. And we got lucky with this one, frankly, because though it is infectious, it isn't that lethal. So uh, it's quite possible to imagine something even worse. Turning to the positives of this um, epic story and despite the many failings of government, the institutions around government as well, the scientific community and their response to the coronavirus will actually, you say, go down in history as one of humanity's more remarkable collective achievements. Yeah, it's absolutely staggering, right? Because the Chinese scientists get to work sequencing this thing almost as soon as Beijing acknowledges it's there. And then this team, Australian Chinese team, leaked it against official instructions. They just stuck it on the web. And as soon as that happened, you know, the resources of thousands of lab benches and lab computers were directed towards trying to figure something out. It looks as though we had maps for the mRNA vaccines literally within weeks yes, um, of that, of, of the being put out, right? And so then what we had to do was build legitimacy around those by running all these elaborate tests. But the Chinese were injecting people with a rough and ready, much more conventional vaccine again within weeks. Um, so we do have the capacity to fight this kind of threat. The question, of course, is do we have the capacity to organize then the, the global vaccine rollout? And that's, as it were, the shattering disillusionment of this story. On the one hand, not just one vaccine, but half a dozen. Yeah. And on the other hand, half the world's population not hasn't ha seen one not yet. Not having them, yeah. Um, Adam, one final question. Uh, it, this was a real-time emergency. Responses from governments all over the world were coming in uh, thick and fast. You must have been writing this book as events were happening all around you. Um, I certainly felt I was reading a history book whilst remembering it. As a writer and a historian, did you find the exercise really challenging? Yes, I didn't do it. I mean, like everyone else, it wasn't my plan. You know, 2020 kind of changed one's plans. I was writing something else about the climate crisis, in fact, and then felt really just compelled to do this um, because the story, not just the scale, but also 
the, the book is really above all about the financial dimensions of this crisis. And given everything else that was going on, you know, folks had other things to worry about. But hidden in this story is this very alarming instability in the global financial system, which is what drove the central banks and treasuries to act in March. It wasn't really so much the humanitarian crisis in the first instance mm. as simply the fact that it looked like we were staring down the barrel of a new financial crisis. And that really for me, was a kind of call to arms to get on and try and get this narrative out there. Because it's, we not only face these risks, but we face these risks with a hugely unstable infrastructure within the economy that uh, folks really need to understand the limits of and, and what it takes to stabilise that over and over again. Well, Adam, the analysis in the book is very intense and it's very impressive. Um, You're unlikely to find a more comprehensive assessment of the macroeconomic or political responses to the pandemic, but I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. That's Adam Tooze, Professor of History and Director at the European Institute of Columbia University. Adam, thank you for being with us today. Absolute pleasure. We're joined now from London by Azim Azar, who's an award-winning entrepreneur. He joins us now to discuss his new book, Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It, in which he argues that we're entering a new era of human history. Azim, you're very welcome to News Talk and thank you for joining us. Uh, What a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Azim, according to your book, we're entering a new paradigm. What's the book about and what exactly is the exponential age? Well, the argument is that uh, because of the power of a number of technologies, some of which we're very familiar with, like computers and smartphones, and some which we're less familiar with, uh, we are going through a process now where we're going to redefine the way in which our industries and our economies and ultimately our societies and ways of life uh, will operate. And and I think that it is a a transition that will be as significant as a kind of transition that we might have seen in uh, the United Kingdom or in Ireland uh, between the turn of the uh, the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th, when we went from sort of largely rural societies to much more urban societies and technologies like cars and telephones and and electricity systems, which we have lived with for the last hundred years. And I think it is a, a turning point uh, that no one alive today has uh, previously experienced. Yeah, so just let's take one of those technologies, for for example, just take energy, which the world yeah. has been talking about uh, frequently over the last two weeks. Yeah. I can see what you mean when you apply it to a particular uh, sector, but it's hardly a new era, is it? It's just, is it a wave of modernization, progress, similar to what we've seen in the Industrial Revolution or the Tech Revolution? It's not exactly a new era, it's just we're advancing. Well, we are advancing, uh, and but we are advancing very, very quickly. Uh, and it's in that speed of change that things get really, really deeply unsettled. Uh, for, for most of us listening to this show, we will remember a time when control of oil supplies was a really important uh, strategic issue for, for nations, and, and wars were fought over them. We can also remember that uh, one wanted a car with a big, powerful engine that had a sort of a roaring sound. Uh, and, and today, because of uh, the shift towards renewables, the strategic importance of oil has largely disappeared. We look for different things in our cars, and that tends to change, of course, not just where we put our soldiers and how many soldiers we have, but the kinds of things that we value and which companies will succeed uh, in this new era. So from a distance, it might look like well, we've, we've seen this kind of progress before, but, but my argument is that a lot of things will change um, and that they'll also change really, really quickly. Mm. It won't be a gradual shift. It'll be quite a fast switch. I suppose I had a bit of trouble getting my head around it until I applied the, the, the phrase, the exponential gap uh, to, to something like Amazon and where Amazon took a traditional business approach and looked at it in a different way and that resulted in growth at a remarkable speed and scale. Um, And that's what you mean, isn't it, about uh, how companies then can catch up with that pace of change? The the few companies uh, and organisations that figured out that the world was going to operate really, really differently have done very, very well. Uh, and of course, they've done very com- well commercially in the way, the shape that sort of Amazon or perhaps Google has done. Uh, but I'm also concerned with what it means when 
almost out of nowhere. I mean, Amazon is only 25 years old or so. Mm. Uh, almost out of nowhere, an enormous new economic power emerges into an economy. And suddenly, well, our retail industry looks very, very different. The kind of jobs that people in retail do look very, very different. And are we able to adjust to that speed? As consumers, we've benefited from cheaper products, but as, as citizens or as employees, have we benefited in quite the same way? Yeah, and as, as you've you pointed out, opportunities are going to happen very quickly. So how do companies equip themselves to deal with that pace of change? I think for any organisations, whether it's companies or uh, churches or governments, it's difficult to uh, to deal with the, 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 the rapidity of change. I think many of us will remember uh, you know, video rental businesses that have gone long on the way uh, of, of history because of things like Netflix. I, I think what it requires is the first and foremost an understanding of how the technology evolves, how quickly it can shape the world, what things we can depend on and where we're uncertain about what the technology will do. So you need to understand the technology. You can't leave it to someone else. And then the second thing is once you've recognized that there are new opportunities, that there is a wave that is going to change the landscape, you then have to commit yourself to to deciding to work with that in some way. And many of the organizations that, that we can think of that have been surpassed in recent years Often they fail to understand how the technology was operating. And even if they did, they failed to make the commitment to make that change. And, and, and it does mean, I'm afraid, a little bit of discomfort. It sounds like a lot of discomfort uh, because it's not really an option. It's something that's just happening anyway. So where, where, where is our role in all of this? Where do we as humans uh, fit in? And is it just the case that we're going to become obsolete and redundant as all this new technology takes over? You know, I think that many of us are feeling quite frustrated uh, about technology, that we have a different sense of it today uh, in 2021 as we might have done in, in 2012 or 2013. The, the ideas of wonder of Facebook or Instagram or the latest iPhone have been replaced, I think, with a bit of distrust, a bit of ennui, a bit of frustration, a sense that maybe these technologies don't work for us. And, and I think in some cases, as we're discovering with this Facebook whistleblower, that seems like a reasonable position for us to hold. And I think one of the things that we need to do is recognize that technology is not something that happens out there, out there in Silicon Valley or in Shenzhen in China. It is something that humans have done since we became human. It is an, an intimately human thing. And because of that, we need to become more participative in our understanding of technology and how we uh, express our understanding of it. And that, I think, is something that we've not done over the last 30, 40 years. As technology became more powerful, we just left it to these sort of strange, powerful, curious uh, people working in tech firms to deliver it to us like a warm pizza on a Friday night. What I would like people to do is understand the power of the technology, understand how it works so they can participate in shaping that future. Yeah, and your book certainly does that, give a sense of how rapid the changes are and how important it is going forward to understand the implications of that uh, uh, scale of, of change and the pace of it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Azim Azar, who's author of Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It. Now, as you said earlier, there has been a lot of discussion about the advancement of technology. Is it making us lazy? Is it making us stupid? Its discourse is negative. And in the case of social media, is it influencing national policy and even national governments? So what does the future hold for technology and technological advancement? Well, uh, I'm afraid we're just going to be getting more of it. The, the, the way our economies uh, operate, the, the fact that we want to uh, decarbonize uh, the, the planet, uh, the fact that we want to come up with new drugs and therapeutics to uh, sort of prevent illness, all of those things are going to be driven by uh, technologies and, and new innovations. So we have to figure out how we shape those to our benefits, how we make them human-centric, how we make them serve the, the wider public purpose. And the way we do that uh, is we have to equip ourselves with that, that information and we have to express ourselves, whether it's simple things through how we vote 
or if we have that ability to shape what our companies do. But what we must stop doing is we must stop assuming that technology is something that is somehow gifted to us by powerful men and women in, com in companies in distant lands and that we simply need to accept that. We need to, like anybody, uh, step up and participate. Um, one of the other things that you talk about in the book is the universal basic income, which mm -hmm. is um, a significant uh, shift in how we're uh, employed uh, today. And, and I just wanted to talk to you or maybe flesh out the practicalities of that. Like it's a very mm -hmm. costly exercise, uh, but you really do think we need to redefine the welfare state to, to support this new era. Uh, we, we do need to redefine the welfare state uh, because there's going to be a lot of change and in that change there will be some winners people who will do extremely well out of it and companies that will do very well out of it and there will be people who will find themselves uh in much more precarious positions losing the jobs they may have had for for decades and in that kind of environment we need to ensure that there's a right kind of uh safety net in in place now i don't really advocate for the idea of universal basic income uh, in the book. I think it's an interesting idea that people should experiment with. But I think what we do need to do is recognize that uh, there's going to be a lot of change and that change is easy for uh, the sort of wealthy to accommodate, but it's not easy for the majority of the population, the majority of us to deal with. And that requires rethinking what welfare looks like. Uh, and, and, and I leave it at that because in different countries, different solutions will be appropriate. And UBI might work in, in Ireland. It might not work in the United Kingdom. In Denmark, they have something called flex security. I think it's important that we recognize that there won't be simple universal solutions. There will be things that, that, that are more appropriate for every country, every community, every city. Now, sadly, Azim, we've run out of time, but no doubt these emerging technologies will continue to influence our lives and our livelihoods. The message to business is get ready or get ready to be left behind. That's Azim Azar, author of Exponential, how accelerating technology is leaving us behind and what to do about it. Azim, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to today's guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Ronan Coveney with Stephen McLoon on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. In 2011, we made the first Revive Active supplement in Galway. Now, it's Ireland's number one dietary supplement used all over the world by people who want to get the most out of life. My favourite product in the entire range has to be Revive Active. It's the Rolls-Royce Super Supplement. It's a high quality product packed of powerful ingredients. It is Irish and us as an Irish brand in Mars Pharmacy, that's really important to us. Visit any Mars Pharmacy to find out more about Revive Active and find out why more people rely on Revive Active Super Supplements to get the most out of life. Visit reviveactive.com.